The title of our message this morning is Paul an Apostle. And this morning we're going to begin a study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, during our study of the doctrine of salvation, we spent some time in the second chapter, but today we're going to go back to chapter 1, and we're going to begin walking through this book of Ephesians. But before we get into our message this morning, I want to give you just a brief introduction of of this letter and tell you some of the great truths that we're going to discover as we make our way through this book. Um, This book's been given many different titles. Uh, It's been called the Alps of the New Testament, the Heavenly Epistle, the Crown and Climax of Pauline Theology. Samuel Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. The book of Ephesians can be divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal in nature and chapters 4 through 6 are very practical. The first three chapters tell us what we have and the last three chapters tell us what to do with what we have. The first three three chapters tell us about our position in Christ and the last three chapters tell us about our practice on earth, how to live out what we've been given. Someone has even called Ephesians the believer's checkbook. Imagine having an account upon which you could write checks as often as you wished in any amount you wished and that account would never be diminished. That is what the believer has in the book of Ephesians. This book reveals the riches of God's grace to the believer. It teaches us about what we have because of who we are in Jesus. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's a book about riches. It lets us know what we are in Christ and what God has done for us because of Jesus. In fact, the words in Christ appear close to 20 times. I believe it is. It's all about who we are in Christ and how we are to live because we are in Christ. And so with that, just as a little bit of background, I want to read just one verse today, and that is Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 1. And you might be thinking, preacher, if you're only reading one verse today, we've got a long ways to go before we get through six chapters. I promise you as we begin to go through this, it's going to pick up, but let me just say this. As you get right here into the very first chapter, verse 3 through 14, there is so much in those verses. 3 through 14. That we're probably going to have to probably preach one verse at a time as we just look at those verses because... It talks about our spiritual blessings in Christ. And I want to drain as much nutrition and as much value from them as possible because you need to understand what you have in Jesus. And you don't want me to preach 3 to 14 in one sermon because if we did, we'd be here for hours and your bottom can't stand that to be here for hours. And my voice can't preach for that long. And so... Here's the thing. Lord willing, unless Jesus comes back, there's going to be another Sunday. And I plan to be right here. And so we're just going to preach it. Line by line, verse by verse, and find out what God has to say. Amen. So let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. We see that Paul is the author that is writing to the saints in Ephesus. And next week we're going to talk more about what it means to be saints and what it means to be faithful. But for our message this morning, we're going to simply focus on this one little this phrase. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's our focus this morning. And so here's the very first point on your notes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The name Paul, it means little. His original name was Saul. He was named after the most famous of Benjamites, Benjamites, the first king of Israel, King Saul. Saul was well educated in the school of Gamaliel. He was a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a prominent Jewish leader who hated the followers of Jesus Christ and he did everything he could to destroy them. He wanted to see them wiped out. He didn't have any room for Jesus in his life or for any believer in his life. In fact, here's what Acts chapter 8 verse 3 tells us. It says, But Saul ravaged the church, entering house by house and dragging out both men and women and committing them to prison. He wanted to do away with Christianity. And then Acts chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 says says this, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted to destroy Christianity. He wanted to destroy men and women who believed in Jesus Christ. According to Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it tells us that when Stephen, who was the first martyr, was stoned to death, that Saul was present and he gave his consent and his approval. In fact, Saul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. Listen to Acts 22.20. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death, guarding the clothes of those who killed him. Saul was a very dangerous man. But here's the thing about Saul. If you would have asked him, he would have told you that he was a very religious man. He was a Pharisee and he was very zealous about his religion. In fact, he would have told you concerning his religion, he was blameless. In fact, here's the thing. He thought that when he was destroying Christians and persecuting believers and trying to wipe out Jesus, he was actually doing the work of God. Saul didn't want anything to do with Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with believers. He didn't want anything to do with the Christian way. He wanted to see them destroyed. He wanted to see them wiped out. But here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, and by the way, that's how he starts most of the New Testament letters when he writes. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it makes you ask the question, what happened to Saul? Can I tell you what happened to him? Jesus changed his life. Jesus became his Savior. Jesus became his Lord. Jesus became his Master. Notice the phrasing. Notice the text. Paul, an apostle, notice this little word, of Jesus Christ. This phrase means that he belonged to Christ. His life was not his own to do with as he liked. He was the possession and property of Jesus. And he must always live as Jesus Christ wanted him to live. And hear me today. If you are saved, the same is true of you. You belong to Jesus. The Bible says that we have been bought and purchased with the blood of Jesus. And you are no longer your own. 
That means now I can no longer live the way I want to live. I cannot live for my selfish motives. But now I'm supposed to live the way Jesus wants me to live. I'm supposed to live for His will and His motives and for His purposes. I belong to Him. Let me give you one great truth that we can take away from this phrase. Here it is. God can change any person's life. Saul the persecutor became Paul the preacher. Paul the apostle. The message that he once tried to destroy, he began to proclaim himself. God changed his life and he became God's messenger and missionary to the Gentiles. Think about that. He once tried to destroy the faith, but now he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. That's the power of grace. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that I proclaimed to you last week. God can change any person's life. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that He counted me faithful putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. These verses here give us really a short version of Paul's testimony. He describes what he was before Jesus. He says, I was a blasphemer. He says, I was a persecutor. He says, I was injurious. That means I was proud. I was arrogant. It even means I was violent. But then he says he obtained mercy. He says God's grace was exceedingly abundant towards him. He even said, I was the chief of sinners. That's what Paul thought of himself. But here's the thing about Paul. He understood that it was the power and grace of God that had changed his life. He understood his unworthiness, but he knew that it was God's grace that was greater than his own unworthiness. He knew God's grace and God's power was even greater than his own past. He said, I thank God that he has enabled me to put me into the ministry. He said, I'm not worthy to preach this gospel, but God's grace and mercy was abundant to me and he has enabled me to be in the ministry. He understood that God has brought me to where I am. He understood that it's by God's grace that I am what I am. And I'm only here because God has counted me to be faithful. God changed His life. You see, that's the power of God's grace. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus has the power to change anybody's life. It doesn't matter where they've been and what they've done. Jesus can change their life. You know, Jesus can turn murderers into missionaries. Amen? You see, that's the power of Jesus. That's the power of His death and resurrection. He can take drug addicts and homosexuals, liars, cheaters, fornicators, thieves, etc. Just fill in the blank. And He can turn them into people He can use. He did it with Paul. You see, no one's beyond the power of the transforming, uh, is beyond the transforming power of God's grace. Maybe today you've walked in here and you've got a family member in mind that seems to be a little too far gone. Maybe they have an addiction they can't seem to shake. Maybe they're living a lifestyle that's destroying them and it doesn't look like they'll ever be free from it. 
I want to tell you today, I want to encourage you, don't give up on them because God can change them. Amen? You keep calling out their name to God in prayer because God can change them. But let me also encourage you a second way. Don't ever forget where God brought you from. Never forget how God changed your life. Never forget how God transformed you. I'm afraid that sometimes the longer we stay in church and the longer we walk with God, we tend to forget how sinful and messed up we were. Amen? Sometimes we we, we, we act like the longer we stay in church, we've always been holy. No, you weren't. And even now, you ain't always holy. Amen? You don't always get it right now. You don't always say the right thing now. You don't always act the right uh, act, act, act the right way now. You don't always have the right attitude now. Listen, if it weren't for the grace of God, any of us could go crazy. You see, the truth is, none of us would be here if God hadn't intervened and changed us from what we were to what we are now. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. But notice this, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Notice, Paul's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in the grace of God. Hear me, any good thing that you and I could ever do or will do, we can't take credit for it. It's not I, but it's the grace of God which was with me. It's His grace. It's His grace. Listen, I know where I was, and let me ask you today, if not for the grace of God, be today. If not for God's grace showing up in your life, where would you be today? There's a good chance some of us wouldn't be here. There's a good chance some of us wouldn't be alive if God's grace hadn't intervened. Some of us were living lives that could have easily caused us to lose our lives. But God's grace intervened. Thank God for His grace. Thank God for His transforming power. I'm glad that He can change us. Amen. But notice the second thing. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice these words, by the will of God. Paul didn't call himself to be an apostle. He was called by God. Paul didn't seek this apostleship, but God chose him. Look at Acts 9, verse 10 through 15. It says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays. And has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many, of the, uh, by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. Notice that he is a chosen vessel unto me. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do you see that? God said he is a chosen vessel. You see, who Paul was and what he was doing was God's will. His work and employment were chosen by God, not himself. 
You see, Paul didn't choose the ministry because it was a good profession to enter or because his friends thought that he would somehow make a good preacher. He was a minister because God had called him to be a minister. He didn't volunteer for the job, but rather it was thrust upon him. He was recruited by God. You see, as Paul makes this statement, his attitude isn't one of pride, but rather it's one of humility. It's one of amazement. You see, Paul is amazed that God could have chosen a man like him to do his work. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. That's a statement of humility. It's by the will of God that I'm able to do this. It's by the will of God that I have this authority. You see, as believers, we must never be filled with pride at any task that God gives us to do. But rather, we should be filled with wonder and amazement that God would even consider us worthy to share His work. You see, I should never get to a place to be puffed up with pride that God would allow me to preach His work, preach His Word, but I should always stand in amazement and humility that God would let me do what I do week after week. Because I can promise you this, if I ever get to a place where I think I can do this without Him, and I stand in pride and arrogance, God will certainly humble me. Let me give you two truths. Number one, true callings come from God, not men. True callings come from God, not men. Listen, your parents and grandparents can't call you into ministry. Your friends can't call you into ministry. Only God calls people into the ministry. Only God calls people to be pastors and missionaries and evangelists and apostles and prophets. God calls people, not other people. People don't call you to preach. People don't call you to be missionaries. People don't call you to be an evangelist. God calls people. True callings come from God, not men. You Listen, you don't enter into this because you think it's going to be a good career or profession. You enter into this because you have a call of God on your life. Anybody who aspires to be a pastor, here's what I would give them an advice to do. If you can do anything else but do it, then go do that. You only do this because you know God has called you to do it. My mom didn't call me to do this. My daddy didn't call me to do this. In fact, they told me, son, if you can do anything else but preach, do it. They tried to talk me out of it. Listen, I'd have a lot less headache and heartache if I did something else besides this. I can promise you this, I'd get paid a lot better doing other things besides this. But I do this because I know that I know, Brother Lynn, what God's called me to do. And can't nobody talk me out of it. That's the thing. God calls people to ministry. And that's what Paul understood. He was certain of his calling. He knew that God put him into ministry. He knew that God had called him to be an apostle. And nobody else had thrust that upon him but God alone. And he counted it a privilege to serve Jesus. But here's the second truth I want to give you. God uses people to do His work. You see, Paul did great things for God. 
Most of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. But guess what? Paul's no longer here. He's no longer here. But how many understand the work of God has to go on? Peter, James, John, they're no longer here. But the work of God has to go on. So let me ask you a question. Who does God want to use to do His work? He wants to use you and me. God wants to take ordinary people like you and me to accomplish His work. But let me ask you this. Do you know what God's called you to do? Paul knew what God had called him to do. I'm an apostle by the will of God. But can I ask you today, do you know what God has called you to do? How many of us can say today that we are doing God's will? How many of us are sure that our work and profession are of God? That we are right where God wants us to be? Are we working and serving where God wants us to be? Or where we want to be? Are we in God's will? Or out of God's will? You see, I believe that God has a plan for our lives. I believe that God has a will for our lives. But do we know what it is? Listen to Ephesians 5.17 Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You want to know what wisdom is? Finding out the will of God. And walking in it. How many believe that's a pretty good definition of what wisdom is? Finding out the will of God and walking in it. Being unwise is not walking in the will of God. Isn't that what he compares it to? Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I believe God wants us to understand what His will is. He wants you to know what His purpose is. But you may be wondering, Pastor, how, how do I know what the will of God is for my life? And here's the thing. Most people think that God's will is mysterious. Somehow people think, well, God's trying to play hide and seek with me when it comes to His will. I believe God wants you to know His will for your life. I want to quickly give you six steps that will help you know God's will. Number one, you've got to walk with God. You've got to walk with God. You've got to learn to develop a relationship with Him. You've got to read His Word. You've got to spend time in prayer. You've, you've got to learn to simply walk with God. Jesus didn't die so you could have religion. He died so you could have a relationship. You've got to walk with God. Talk with Him and let Him talk with you. Because here's the thing. Why would God show you His will if you don't want to know Him better? Let me say that again. Why would God reveal His will to you if you don't want to know Him better? Number two, surrender your will to God's will. Before God will begin to reveal His will to you, you must be committed, committed to doing whatever it is that He desires for you to do. You see, God will, be like, will likely be slow to show you His plan if He knows you will likely not do that plan anyway. If you're saying, God, I want you to show me your will for my life, but God knows you're not going to be obedient, then guess what? God's not going to show you. So you've got to be willing to say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And mean it. 
And then God can show you what He wants you to do. That means you've got to be willing to lay aside your dreams, your plans, your goals, and say, God, here I am. I'll do it. Number three, obey what you already know to be God's will. You see, many people want to know what God's plan is for their lives, but they overlook the fact that the majority of God's will is already written right here in His Word. If you won't, if you won't obey what you already know to do, you most likely won't obey anything else God tells you to do. If you won't obey the commands of God's Word, you probably won't obey His will to pack up your family and go be a missionary or pack up your family and go be a pastor. If you, if you can't obey His command to be a tither and a giver, if God tells you to pack up your family and go be a pastor, most likely you won't do it if you can't obey the simple command of being a giver. I'm, I'm, just, being, I'm just being honest. If you can't obey simple things, of sharing your faith with somebody else. How are you going to move halfway across the country? Does that make sense? I can't do something simple. I'm not going to do something greater. Can't be responsible with the little things, faithful with the little things. How's God going to thrust something greater on me? You've got to obey what you already know to be God's will. Well, here's the thing: God can't give you more if He can't trust you with what you've already got. You got to start where you are. But here's the thing: we often want to seek the spotlight. Sometimes you've got to start where you are. Pick up a toilet brush and go clean a bathroom. But if I'm too good for that, well then you'll never stand in a pulpit and preach. You'll never stand in the Sunday school room and teach. You're too good to clean a, clean a porcelain toilet. can't stand at a door and shake people's hands or do, do little menial tasks that nobody else will ever know about that you'll never get credit for. God will never use you to do anything greater. Because here's the thing. That Jesus was one of the greatest servants that walked this earth. And in John 13, He took a towel and a basin of water and He knelt down and washed His disciples' feet. And He told them, Go and do we're living in a day where everybody has to have a title. And everybody has to have their name known. Jesus came and He served. You want to know what minister in the Bible talks about? It talks about somebody who serves. That's what we all need to be, people who serve. We've got to obey what you already know. Number four, I believe it is. Seek godly input. God will use others to often confirm what He's already been speaking to you. Now hear me. God's not going to use somebody to call you. I didn't talk about that. True callings come from God, not men. But He can use other people to confirm what He's already telling you. He can use people to give you advice, to give you counsel, to help you discern 
His will. Look at Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Number five, pay attention to how God has wired you. You see, God has created you to fulfill a specific role in this world. And there's no one else who can achieve completely what God has purposely created you to do. Listen to 1 Peter 4.10. As everyone has received a gift. Let me ask you, how many people have received a gift? What does it say? Everyone has received a gift. Even so, serve one another with it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what that tells me? If you're not using your gift, you're not being a good steward. Isn't that what it says? Use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if you're not using your gift, in other words, if God's given you the gift to sing and play music and you're not doing it, you're not being a good steward. If God's given you the gift to, to put things together and work with your hands and you're not using it for His glory, you're not being a good steward. If you have the ability to teach and you're not teaching, you're not being a good steward. I'll just say this. The Bible talks about the gift of giving. And listen, if God's blessed you financially, you have the gift of gifting and you're not doing what God's called you, you're not being a good steward. The gift of encouragement. And you're not encouraging people and making people feel better. You're not being a good steward. We often think of gifts, just 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the spiritual gifts. Oh, that's what we want. Listen, the Bible, there's more than 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Everyone has received a gift. Serve one another with it. The Bible talks about the church being a body. And the body has different members. And all the members function so that the whole body can do what it's supposed to do. You know, it's foolish to me. It would be foolish for me to say, I don't need my left hand and go out and lop it off. That's foolish. I'm dominantly right-handed. This is how I write. I'm going to catch with this hand. That's why I need it. If I'm going to play baseball, I'm going to have to catch with this. I'm going to bat right-handed. I'm going to play golf. But I could say, well, I, I, I write with my right hand, so I don't really need this left hand that much. Foolish. Because there'll come a day I need this. Because here's the thing. Even though I may not use it that much, I lop it off and I go to try to tie my shoes one day. I'm going to need this. For no other reason but to tie my shoes unless I get off slip-ons. Every part of our body functions for something. And in the body of Christ, every member has a gift. Something they're supposed to use to help the body function. And you need to find out what your gift is and put it to use. Because here's the thing. Most often your calling will line up with your gifting. Let me say that again. Most often your calling will line up with your gifting. Now there will be instances such as me where what God's called you to do don't line up. I'm not a natural public speaker. You've heard me say before, I would not stand up and talk in public. Music had no problem. 
I could play the crowds, trumpet, guitar, whatever. It didn't matter. Music didn't bother me. But I'm not going to talk in public. Sometimes God does get you out your comfort zone. But a lot of times, God can take what you're naturally gifted at and how He's wired you to use that as your calling. So look at how God's naturally wired you. But number six, take a look at your circumstances. God often clearly demonstrates His plan for our lives by lining up circumstances in obvious ways. And He also shows us what is not His will for us in the same way. Let me say it this way, or illustrate it this way. It's not His will for you to take the job that isn't offered to you. Does that make sense? If the job's not offered to you, most likely it's not God's will. Or I'll say it this way. If you're five, five foot six, 125 pounds soaking wet, most likely God hadn't called you to play football. See, over the years I've discovered that God is pretty good at opening doors and closing doors. He did that for the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. Do you see that? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night a vision appeared to Paul, a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul, he's trying to preach the gospel, but notice the Holy Spirit forbid him. The Holy Spirit closed the door. The Holy Spirit closed the opportunity. But then he receives a vision about a, a man from Macedonia. He receives this vision, and he concludes, Hey, that's where I'm supposed to go. And the door opened for him to go into Macedonia. Hear what I'm about to say. Open doors are usually a sign of God's will, while closed doors are usually a sign that it isn't God's will. And here's what I've learned over my years of serving God concerning the will of God. Don't force doors to open, but be quick to walk through doors that do open. Let me say it again. When a door slams shut, don't try to force it open. Don't try to manipulate your way into a situation that God has shut, because you'll be miserable if you do. But if a door opens, you better be quick to walk through it because you might miss it. And here's what we've often been told when it comes to the will of God. I've got to have perfect peace about it. If you had to have perfect peace about it all the time, it wouldn't require faith. But sometimes that's what we've been told. You've got to have perfect peace about every decision you always make. That don't take faith. Because sometimes God wants you to get a little uncomfortable. God wants you to trust Him. And sometimes doors open. And you may not have perfect peace about what you've got to do, but here's the thing. Sometimes you've got to make a decision. And you just, have to, you just have to go. Because here's the thing. When you make a decision and you go, God can work everything out. Because God works through circumstances. And when, open, and when doors open, many times that's God working. And you just have to go by faith. Believe me. This may be what God wants me to do. Look at your circumstances. What's God doing? Is God closing things and God opening things? 
Many times that's how you determine what God's doing in your life. And you trust Him and believe that your steps are being determined by Him. Amen? You can know God's will for your life, but you'll never know it until you seek it. And in my opinion, this is why many churches never reach their full potential. In my opinion, this is why some believers aren't truly satisfied with their lives. There's a lot of believers today that they're not satisfied because they're not living out the life God's called them to live. Listen, you'll never be satisfied until you're doing what God's called you to do. And you might be sitting here today thinking, Preacher, I'm past the prime of my life. It's too late to start doing what God's called me to do. Listen, it's never too late to start doing what God's called you to do. I'll say this. If you're not dead, God's not done. If you're not dead, God's not done. God still wants to use you. Amen? So in closing, I've said everything I've said so far to give you one little sentence. Here's what I'm going to call it. The sermon in a sentence. Basically, you could take everything I've said so far, and if you don't remember it, you can remember this one little statement. And you can carry my message with you the entire week. Here it is. Once God has changed your life, God wants to use your life. Once God has changed your life, God wants to use your life. You can write that down. You can put that in the dash of your car. You can hang it on your mirror. And that's the message for the rest of the week, brother, brother Paul. Once God's changed your life, God wants to use your life. That's what He did with Paul. Let me close with this Scripture. Acts 9, verse 5 through 6. And He said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the bricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Once we have met Jesus, we should do like Paul and ask, Lord, what will you have me to do? And I believe if you'll ask that question in sincerity, God will show you what He wants you to do. As soon as Paul meets Jesus on his way to Damascus, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He struck blind and knocked off his donkey. Lord, what do you want me to do? And if you're here today and you've met Jesus, you've seen the light, you've met Him personally, you need to ask Him, Lord, what will you have me do? But I wonder this morning, how many of us have met Jesus, but we've never asked the question, what do you want me to do? We've been changed, Sister Mary Beth, but we've never said, Lord, use me. We've had our hearts changed. We've been converted, but we've never prayed. God, what's your will for my life? If that's you today, maybe you need to take the next step and say, Lord, what will you have me do? Many of you in here today, you've been serving God a lot longer than I have, but you've never asked that question. 
what we have me do? You've been saved on your way to heaven many more years than I have, but you've never asked that question. What will you have me do? And today's the day to ask that question. What will you have me do? And I believe if you ask in sincerity, if you'll come to Him with humility and say, God, what do you want from me? I believe God will show you. And God will make the rest of your life before you leave this world give you the greatest harvest you've ever had and use you like you've never been used before. Because once God has changed you, God wants to use you. Would you stand with me?